Anthony for three. Bang! Curry way downtown. Bang! Seconds. Bryant for the win. Bang! trying to get open. Fires away. Bang! It's over! Doncic pulls up. Three-pointer. Bang! Bang! It's good! Doncic wins the game at the buzzer! Welcome to the Knockdown J NBA podcast, where we talk about everything in the league. I am your host, Jalen Dixon, and today we are getting into dark horse contenders. Look, man, there's plenty of teams that are on the top of the list for everybody going into the season as the favorites, right? There's a typical handful of squads that you just feel maybe a little bit too comfortable with picking. And there's a lot of times where those front runners don't show up. Because some of these other teams that we don't focus on throughout the season end up making a lot of noise, and it takes until the postseason for us to really give them some love. We're not waiting until the postseason to start shedding some light on that. Today, we're going to talk about some of those teams that can make some real noise in the postseason based off their roster construction, some of the moves they made in the offseason, and some of the things that they could do moving forward with the fact that obviously they have the trade deadline and there are injuries and different things like that taken into consideration. But... It would not be fun to talk about just my dark, dark horse teams. That that You guys don't want to hear me talk about my dark, dark horse teams by itself. So I brought on my good friend Rashad from the Drop Step on YouTube to talk about yes, some dark horses. First, Rashad, how you doing, man? Hey, look, we had a good convo right before we hit record. <laughs> Today has been a very productive day. I actually just finished the drop step video today. Yes, that's going to be uploaded. Um, it's it's been a good it's been a good week, man. I felt good about the work I've been doing lately. Oh, most definitely, man. Definitely, we're gonna end up you know plugging that stuff a little bit more towards the back mm-hmm. end of the episode, just so you can share a little bit more about what to kind of, what kind of content you have on your page, and of course, plug everything as well. Um, but in terms of talking about how we're going to do this dark horse episode. The first thing that I felt like was really important was defining what a dark horse actually is. So the way that I went about it was focusing on teams that are not heavily favored within the Vegas uh, odds makers this early in the, or this late in the off season, this early before the season starts, this little middle middle portion in between, you know, free agency being dead and training camp, the odds aren't going to move too much. But there are certain things that took place during free agency, as well as some certain topics that took place that maybe me and Rashad will get into a little bit later, that have influenced the betting odds um, over the last couple of days. The way I set a dark horse contender is anybody who falls out of the top six, according to Vegas insiders. And the reason why I did this is because after the top six, there's a significant drop-off that takes that takes place around six or seven. So as of the day that we're recording this, it's going to be August 24th, but the line will stay relatively similar throughout the rest of this time frame between now and uh, the start of the season, barring some uh, something other crazy going on in terms of... Donovan Mitchell's still on the market, man. You know what I, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I, ain't, I ain't trying to speak it into existence. I'm just saying. But, you know, saying. so with that being the case, of course, barring anything crazy happening, this line is going to stay relatively consistent up until training camp. And so this is the line that we're going to rock with. At the top spot is going to be the Boston Celtics at plus 500. Second is uh, plus 650 for the Golden State Warriors. Behind them is plus 687 for the Milwaukee Bucks. After that 
is the Los Angeles Clippers at four at plus 712. The Brooklyn Nets moving up significantly at plus seven, uh, 762. Then the Phoenix Suns rounded out at the six by at plus 975. Now, why do I, again, what do I mean when I say there's a significant drop off? The next team after is Philadelphia at plus 1525. So 600 points. we're talking about a pretty significant movement from the top six on down. So the, that's that's why we're using that cutoff. Any team past that is for free game in terms of doing this. Me and Rashad are actually going to pick a dark horse apiece in each conference. So that's going to be four dark horse contenders in total. Rashad, before we get into that, I feel like yes, there's sir. no way in the world that we can talk about dark horse contenders without first talking about the Brooklyn Nets. And the reason why I say that we have to have this conversation is because actually when I initially sent you this link a few days ago, the Brooklyn Nets were not in this top six. Mm -hmm. The Los Angeles Lakers actually were in the top six and no longer are. They're actually floating around ninth place in these, uh, in these rankings now, according to Vegas. I think that the certainty of Kevin Durant now being on this roster is a huge talking point, obviously, mm -hmm. right? But I want to get your thoughts on a few things. The first thing that I want to talk about is your thoughts on the Kevin Durant situation in its totality. Your thoughts from the beginning of all the madness to now the conclusion. Because I think we've gotten a lot of interesting messages from people about the what was the whole point of this or, okay, the Nets won or... You know, Rudy Gobert ruined, uh, what's it, player empowerment with the fact that he made it impossible <laughs> for Kevin Durant to actually garner a real trade opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. All of these crazy narratives associated with this insane saga we've had this summer. So with that being the case, now that it's essentially come to an end, at least for the time being, what are, what are your thoughts on the entire situation? Uh, so... I tried my best to stay really neutral mm -hmm. throughout the entire thing because when the news had first come out, um, I was like, what's the point of this? Mm. You know, like there there's just a lot of there was a lot of turmoil after that playoff run last season and you know, just dealing with the whole Harden thing during the regular season as well. Like I kind of understood where he was coming from, but more than that, I just wondered like now was not the right time to do that. Mm. You've got four years left on your contract. You have a as much people as like to like slander the Nets. That team is really good. Like, and they were making moves to make the roster deeper, to make it more versatile, mm. add more two way potential. But I was just, I kind of wanted to take a backseat because I genuinely had no idea where it was going to go. Mm. Like when you talk about a Kevin Durant, you touched on it, right? Like. Rudy Gobert kind of ruined the trade market. Yeah. <laughs> You're sending Diddy. one, two, five players and four first round picks for Rudy Gobert. What do we, how, how do you even construct a Kevin Durant <laughs> trade after that? They were, cause we're looking at half a roster plus eight picks now for Kevin Durant. Cause he's damn near twice the value of Rudy Gobert, right. probably more. So it's like, I don't know. It was just a it was a bunch of confusion. I think is the best way to put it because it you know like I said before like I kind of understood like all right we need to shake some shit up because two years in a row now we didn't get to where we needed to be, mm. but how like how long do you wait for that to turn because ownership was really like behind Steve Nash and I think that was the biggest point with Kevin Durant, mm. but 
I don't know. It, it was just a lot to process because nothing came of it. Absolutely nothing came of all of this. Mm-hmm. So now, now I'm just even more confused. Right. Yeah, I think you make a great point when you talk about the idea of like what did we actually gain from this? Because here's the here's the here's another point that you that you touched on. I want to kind of further elaborate on it is like look at what he would have been leaving. And I, I hate to like oversell the Nets roster construction like too too much, right? Because we obviously know that there are certain question marks. Obviously the mm-hmm. the status of Ben Simmons is huge, right? The 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 back injury thing is big because for example, a player we're probably going to talk about a little bit later is Michael Porter Jr., for example, dealt yeah. with lower back injuries for a significant span of time, and it's had him in and out of the lineup for the Denver Nuggets significantly over the last two to three seasons, right? Obviously, Ben Simmons is in a similar pocket, and he's a guy that his expectation on this roster is to help sure up their defense. Was trading a first-round pick for Royce O'Neal a little steep of a price for my liking? A little bit, but you can see the vision of what they were going for. Bringing back Patty Mills, I think, was huge. Getting back Nicholas Claxton, I thought, was solid. Bringing in TJ Warren on a flyer, I think, is like casual. I think that's like a good value. That's a really really underrated sign right there. I thought that was a good value deal because you're playing him on a proven contract. I think you also look at the circumstances of Kyrie Irving having to kind of smell himself a little bit, right? You go Mm -hmm. You go into the free agent market and nobody's calling. The only team that actually was making any noise for it was a team that was dealing with their own guy in Russell Westbrook for the Lakers who also wasn't getting any phone calls about him in any, you know, real feasible way in terms of being mm-hmm. able to make a move, right? So then you put all of that together and you say, there's a lot of prove it on this roster still required, especially with the fact that this team hasn't even made the Eastern Conference Finals as constructed. That's, talk about that. You know, that's, that's its own, that could be its own podcast expectation-wise. But then you throw on top of that the fact that roster construction-wise, they're they're solid enough, as clearly Vegas understands, to be a top level team in um in not only the East but in the entire league as constructed. And it kind of makes you wonder if you look at all the and I'll pose it as a question to you: if you look at all of the options that were thrown out as potential trade destinations, right? We look at Miami, Phoenix, mm-hmm. Memphis got in the mix towards the back nine before everything. You know, obviously, you know crescendo but also boston in terms of throwing the whole Jalen yep. brown thing out there um people were pushing for toronto and the pelicans of course as well right who have like perfect roster construction in order to be able to give the nets pieces they would actually want but are any of those teams like championship contenders after a kevin durant trade i could say maybe maybe new orleans but it depends on how much new it depends on how much brooklyn was asking for because beyond bi the lakers picks are very interesting and i thought that would have been a very good selling point but if you got to give up herb jones i don't know we're talking you know apples to oranges in terms of losing a guy in herb jones for a kevin durant but when mm-hmm. you have to lose a Kevin Durant light level player and Brandon Ingram on top of that, along with pick compensation and everything else, okay, that water starts to get murky. When you talk about the Phoenix Suns, it was DeAndre Ayton earlier. That man signed his extension and it nipped the butt in that. The next conversation turned into getting rid of Mikael Bridges and Cam Johnson in trade. You just gave up all your wing depth now. You're 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 the Drake Crowder team. 
now in terms of being able to run things. And, that, and then, again, there's a lack of depth there. Jay Crowder is a solid player, but I don't know if you want him starting your games for them. Not now. Not, not, not now. now. No. You know what I no, mean? No, no. So I'm saying all of that to say, like, did you even see, like, was there even a single trade package really that intrigued? I think New Orleans was the one that caught my eye. But did you see a single trade package that you looked at that team after the trade was complete and went, all right, that, that team with Kevin Durant is a little bit better than this Brooklyn Nets team? No. There was the Boston Celtics thing when it first came out, when they were talking about Jalen Brown, mm-hmm. Derek White, and Marcus Smart, and some picks. Mm-hmm. And that that actually intrigued me mm-hmm. when it first came. I was like, okay, hold on. So if you're, you're giving up three rotational pieces, but like, would Kevin Durant be able to fill in the voids of those those pieces? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the answer would be no, because like you mentioned before, you would have to give up literally all of your depth right. to get Kevin Durant and to put yourself in a position with a 34 year old who's coming off of three straight years of of dealing with injury, mm-hmm. like it's a lot. It's a lot to commit to. And sure, you have him for four years on his contract, but that is the biggest selling point for a team that if they wanted to trade for Kevin Durant, they would have time in the future to build around it. Mm -hmm. So they don't necessarily have to win in that first year. They just have to at least compete for all four. That being said, (laughs) Kevin Durant is such a big question mark, not only because of the availability of injury and stuff like that, we haven't seen him be a championship winner as the guy, mm, right? And that it. that could be an entire different discussion. Mm-hmm. But just like to sum that point up, like he, he went with Stephen Curry. Those two were 1A, 1B, and that's where he worked the best. Mm-hmm. If he goes to another team right now, his best chance at being a 1A, 1B would be the Celtics. But everyone else would just be relying on Kevin Durant. Hey, Go take me to the promised land right now. Mm-hmm. We need this right now. We gave up our entire team for you. Let's do this shit right now. Mm-hmm. No, I don't. There was no other team in that in that market that could have given up pieces that would have been able to to capitalize on it fully because you'd be giving up your compensation. Right. So part of building your team and, and handpicking the pieces that would work best around Kevin Durant, a large part of that comes from the draft. Mm-hmm. You ain't going to be drafted. Facts. <laughs> you Facts. ain't going to be drafted nothing for like six years. <laughs> so it's like, what do you, it was, it would just be too much to give up, man. It would be too much. There was no team out there. I think that would have been comfortable taking that risk. Yeah, man. And I mean, uh, I think, you know, we got a real understanding of where the bar was set early on right i mean yep. even in the earliest conversations of a kevin durant trade i think there was that 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 crazy shams tweet that went out that said they had asked for carl anthony towns and anthony edwards Ooh. as a part of the trade package and i think this was obviously this was obviously prior to the rudy trade um yeah. but it was still just one of those things where like you just got to wonder, bro, like what, like, you, I think that's still going to be one of the biggest questions of the NBA offseason is like, what would an actual trade package for a guy like Kevin Durant actually even look like? Like that sounds humanly impossible to con- like construct, even in like 2K simulation form where you're not like 
player overriding for real. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it sounds no, like that's a good point. It sounds like an insane concept where just the idea of trying to get off of an asset like that, first of all, of course, you're in a very tough position as being the team that's making that decision. But then yep. having to actually come up with something that's realistic from a value standpoint, I mean and don't even talk about trying to get the money to match. Because if you try to send no. out high value rookies, now you got to send out like a fifteen million dollar, twenty million dollar right. player. Yeah, and that's a high value player for your team. Now what? Right. I mean, I mean, a great example of that was Toronto, right? Scotty Barnes yep. was being thrown out in uh, terms of being a potential trade chip. Mind you, dude just won Rookie of the Year, and uh, I'm sorry, this is not Michael Carter Williams we're doing. I think I, <laughs> I think this is a guy in Scotty Barnes who legitimately has you know long term upside, and I think for the system that. Toronto runs he actually kind of fits it like a glove for what they want to do moving forward Mm -hmm. you pair that with the fact that like you said with the making the money work part they'd have to give up on they'd have to give up on Gary Trent Jr. who I think they single-handedly helped kind of turn his career around absolutely he was a solid player with Portland of course but I don't think that he really got the on-ball opportunities that he it was that he's been able to get in Toronto and it's really shown up and shown out for them where he alongside guys like Fred, obviously next two guys like Pascal, even OG to a certain extent, he has been able to have a little bit more of a offense. He's been able to become a little bit more of a offensive focal point. I think that's been able to really unlock some of his three point shooting potential and things like that. All that to say, like, I think we're both making great points on, on both fronts of just the idea that just like, no matter how you, how you dice it, it just never seemed like it was going to happen. The question was just either how long was it going to drag out or how disgruntled was the front office going to be about the situation to simply just give up, right? Simply lower mm-hmm. their standards way below probably what should be netted as market value simply to avoid another drama-filled season, right? Because essentially yep. that, was their, that was a narrative they were pushing most of the offseason was when it, it started with Kyrie Irving in terms of not wanting to give him a long-term extension and saying that part of it is, look, we kind of just need to see where you stand on things because we are more likely to trade you and KD than to go through what we went through last season. And they made that known in the media that they were willing to take that step if need be. It all kind of comes back to this this front that like, I think that the Nets are a solid squad and the the hope now, and this is the big question mark you keep touching on, is the hope now is that now with just basketball being the focal point, right? Because even for Kyrie Irving, it was all of the vaccination stuff. That's no longer an issue. When you talk about Kevin Durant, the, the trade scenario situation is at least no longer a problem for the immediate future. We haven't heard anything negative out of the Ben Simmons camp that says he's not going to be ready to go come to start a training camp. Now it's like, okay, can we just see it on the floor? I think that's the only thing that everybody's asking at this point. Man, like, man, I'm so glad you said that because you touched on the Lakers a little bit. I almost wanted to interject with, like, the fact that these super teams, Mm -hmm. they just take every single move as, like, the big swing. Mm -hmm. So when it is a swing and a miss, you're missing horribly. Right. The Lakers swung on Russell Westbrook. It just did not work. Mm-hmm. Part of it was injury. A large part of it was injury, sure. But they brought him in there to be the replacement in case someone got injured. <laughs> and it just didn't work out like that. And then you look at the Nets and it's like, all right, you took a big swing with Harden. Mm-hmm. Didn't even last a year. Mm-hmm. or It lasted what a year on the dot, whatever. 
you you swing on Ben Simmons, you bring him in, you don't even want to try to take that route. And it's like that was actually that was the biggest point at the start of this entire thing because I just kept thinking, like even with the trio before the the TJ Warren move, before the Royce O'Neal move, mm-hmm. that trio is really really good and they fit together like a glove but because these teams are so enamored with making like the big championship type swing or whatever they think that is they kind of lose sight of what they already have which is a really solid squad yeah i think that you make a lot of good points about just like the framework of like creating a team nowadays and i I mean we saw a bunch of big swings this offseason really right i think minnesota thinks Mm -hmm. they're like more than ready and i would argue that they kind of actually probably needed to not slow down but i think be a little bit more incremental and i think that Mm. mortgaging so much of their you know future from a draft capital standpoint for a guy who i mean we could actually just make the argument that yeah rudy gobert is a little bit of a younger guy but like he doesn't really fit the team's timeline right and that's that's its own question mark um a lot of people have questions about whether or not the twin towers thing will work i uh am on the side of we've seen the sample size in enough different formulas right the anthony davis next to boogie cousins evan mobley and jared allen last season we've seen it in different spurts where it can work now in the small ball era obviously it still is something to tinker with but i think it's still an interesting fit because of the fact that these two guys complement each other's weaknesses in a really strong way but all of that to say like there was a lot of big swings that were made this offseason. Whether you believe they're real significant moves or not is kind of a beauties in the eye of the beholder, right? Some people gassed up the DeJounte Murray trade because of the fact that he does handle a lot of the big question marks we had about backup point guard or having mm-hmm. a secondary ball handler next to Trey Young. But they're both guys who have operated with the ball in their hands significantly. So when you ask both of them to operate off the ball, what does it look like? All of these things were the big swing, go back to the Lakers. I think this is a good way to transition to them because I don't, th- again, I don't think we could talk about contenders or dark horse contenders without them being in this conversation as well. The funny thing too is a lot of these big swings come with significant consequence, not just on the display on the floor, but even after the move is made, so far, I don't think we've seen a big swing in the last, like, you know, since the last trade trade deadline, that was a move that you said, yes, this is going to work from day one. Maybe the James Harden one, but people flipped script on that very quickly when very you know, true. the Harden is washed stuff come the postseason, yep. right? So even that one came with trepidations because the wonder was, which James Harden are we going to get? Next mm. to Joel Embiid, right? Even Joel Embiid verbalized that he wants the old Harden, I think is what he said, right? So even that came with its own questions. So it goes to show you that even with those big swings, it is still it's still almost the 2K mentality that, that the, mm-hmm. the best player available route is the way some of these teams are going to go. And I don't know if it actually, you know, it's going to actualize anything. But again, I want to use that to transition to the Lakers in this sense. This roster is bad, Rashad. It's bad. Oh, talk about it. It's, talk about it. It's bad, bro. Man. <laughs> Man, let me let me pull it up right now because I looked at it the other day and I was like, what on earth is this team going to do? It is bad, bro. Taylor Horton Tucker, Lonnie Walker, uh, 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 Juan Toscano Anderson, Lonnie Walker on the Damian full MLE Jones. too, bro. They use the full. They use the Lonnie full. Walker. Hey man, Lonnie. 
But like, okay, what? So outside of the top three, ain't ain't nothing really gonna happen. Like we got we got very average role players, and role players are already average enough. And you're taking the middle and probably the lowest tier of that pack, mm. and trying to just place them around superstars and hope that it works. That's been the Lakers' problem this whole time. They haven't been able to construct that lineup since the bubble championship. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not lying, dude. I listened to a podcast this morning while I was at work that said there there might be a chance that the best closing five for the Lakers oh, involves no. Juan Toscano Anderson at the four, man. Huh? Oh. <laughs> oh. It's apparently See, supposed to be some kind of interchangeable lineup that has either Braun or Juan Toscano Anderson at the three and four, Anthony Davis at the five. And then the guard situation is interesting because many I, Austin Reeves. That's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that from the podcast I've listened to, there has been arguments made that Austin Reeves might be the most important player beyond the big three in terms of making this team work. And that is sick when considering that this is the same team that picked Taylor Horton Tucker over Alex Caruso. Now, for me, hey man, as a Bulls fan, you know I thank you. Hey, hey you living with that? You know, yes, sir. <laughs> but in, but at the same front, if you're a Lakers fan, you look back at that transaction and you look at the lack of um, progression really from Taylor, and you kind of look at him as one of the one of those players that you you took a swing on the development factor as an as an upside guy. Because they don't have draft picks like that. So anybody who falls in as an upside guy seems like an interesting dude to hold on to. The only issue is that's tough to kind of develop a dude like that when your trajectory is a win-now attitude. That That is a very, very great point. So we can even liken it to a team that did that kind of thing well where they were where they were trying to win and compete for a championship while also trying to develop their young guys. Mm-hmm. We look at the Golden State Warriors. Right. They right. they develop Jordan Poole while they're still trying to win. They have James Wiseman who's coming back who they've been trying to develop through his injury. They they have they've been doing really well at balancing the two. And that's because of the way that they built their roster around. So they went out and got an Andrew Wiggins, who might not necessarily be the biggest asset to a lot of different teams, but he fit exactly what they needed. I don't know if the Lakers even know what they need at this point. <laughs> And I think that's a very serious question they have to answer, like, pronto. Because if you're looking at your second unit, Kendrick Nunn, Lonnie Walker, Stanley Johnson, Thomas Bryant, Damian Jones. Who, is that team beating the third string? Oh, my goodness. Is that is that second unit going to do anything for you when your stars are out and or hurt? Rashad, hold on. I want to ask you this question because I feel like this is actually almost a more interesting question in terms of looking at this team moving forward is this. Mm-hmm. You listed off the bench rotation that they have along with, we've already kind of discussed past the big three, their situation, even in just the starting lineup. Yeah. This was a team that did not even make the play in tournament last year, right? Nope. They have a handful of guys, including, you know, Trevor Ariza, Carmelo Anthony, Dwight Howard's trying out for the WWE. These are people that are still out on the market, right? Mm-hmm. Players that were in the rotation last season. I am on I am in the camp. I believe that this roster this season isn't even better than that. 
I don't even think the roster this season is better than last year. And I think that this year's construction is almost even more reliant on the big three being able to play well in order for them to even be remotely successful. You know what I mean? I think they lost no, I get a you. lot of shoot. I think I think they lost shooting while also thinking they addressed shooting, you know, with the idea of like getting Lonnie Walker, who can be a relatively solid three-point shooter. Grabbing Troy Brown Jr. was kind of cool, I guess, depending on how you feel about him. Thomas Bryant, I think, is a really decent flyer at backup center, which I, I actually kind of like that one a little bit. But it's like you know, this year of all seasons has really become like the Lakers Island of Misfit Toys year. You know what I mean? <laughs> Thomas Bryant is coming off a season that he didn't even really play for most of the year True. for Washington. Lonnie Walker True. couldn't buy minutes from Greg Popovich. He couldn't buy minutes off and the And that bench. team sucked. And that team was trash. They're in the Wimbanyama sweepstakes this upcoming season, and they're fighting a bunch of teams that actually have a legitimate shot to be in that top pick, that top pick scenario. San Antonio just got hip to tanking last year. <laughs> you feel me? So nah, it's just you. It, you know, Juan took Juan Toscano Anderson, glorified cheerleader for the Golden State Warriors at one point to come the back half of the season, especially come playoff time. The dude was relatively out of rotation for most of the postseason. Um, still a serviceable player, and I think he is a guy who has like certain physical tools that are intriguing, but a guy mm-hmm. who is still like you're throwing a flyer out on him, right? These are there's a bunch of guys. Kendrick Nunn didn't play all year. We were saying nobody when, nobody knows what's happening with Kendrick Nunn. You know what I mean? So, like I said, the the, the whole island of misfit toys thing with this with this roster is just like oddly enough. You have more questions with the supporting cast than you do on how to handle the Russ situation. And that's been a question mark since the minute the man was traded for. That's an issue when everyone else can clock your problems, but you just refuse to try to address it and or just ignore your problems as a whole. Talk about (laughs) it. And this is why I appreciate Darvin Ham. He came in. He was like, all right, straight up, Russ, what you did last year for this team just was not working. Your fit as that, not cool. Mm -hmm. Let's switch you to defensive-minded first, Mm -hmm. and then we'll go from there. May not be the best strategy, Mm -hmm. but at least he's offering something. Yeah, They weren't offered anything or came up with anything while they were struggling. Yeah, And, you know... I could talk about the Lakers all day and how bad they are, but that that's all I got. For no, me. I definitely feel you. And I mean, I think I think you make a really great point about Darvin too. Now, I think Darvin might have lost his mind a little bit coming from the Bucks. A little bit, yeah, yeah. He yeah. coming from the Bucks, he made Drew Holiday comparisons, and I that's that's where he started to make me a little concerned about what exactly his what exactly his motive was and all of this. What's, what's the image in your head yeah, for Russell Westbrook oh, next year? I don't know. If you're trying to turn my man into a lockdown defender, um uh, a 30% shooting lockdown defender is not okay. That is Andre Roberson in 2023. I'm not hearing it, bro. If Russell Westbrook gets turned into Andre Roberson, <laughs> do you know how happy <laughs> I would be? That would be so funny to watch all season long. I mean, I, I mean, come on, bro. You know that's exactly what we're talking about. A defensive stopper that you can't trust to shoot the three ball reliably. I mean, that's basically what we're talking about is a guy who yeah. – Now, the difference between him and Andre Roberson, of course, is the fact that he at least Oy. he at least can put pressure on the rim. Of course, we know right. that. But the idea of trying to turn, you know, Russell Westbrook into a 3 and D ball handler it just is a, is a hilarious feat. That sounds like 
Darvin Ham deserves Coach of the Year off rip if he can somehow pull that off. Um, but that's neither here nor there. So we talked about two of the headlining teams that uh that kind of fall into this category only because Brooklyn was a team that kind of was the sleeping giant that was just waiting that everybody was just waiting to see what was going on with the Kevin Durant situation. That's now been uh solved relatively, like I said, at least in the immediate future. The Lakers actually fell into a, uh, the opposite category where they were a team that I think despite everything we just discuss, discussed, people are so, I guess they've, they put so much blind faith in the idea of LeBron plus AD equals that this team was actually the sixth team in the top six when I initially sent you this link. Which does not make sense at all. Does not make any sense at all. Now they've dropped down significantly all to all the way down to plus 1850, um, which is right behind Miami. But it's also, and this is gonna give us a good mm-hmm. it's gonna give us a good chance to transition into our first dark horse. Say it. They're also <laughs> ahead of the Denver Nuggets. Oh, the Denver Nuggets are at boy. plus 20 uh 2050, plus 2050 um per Vegas Insider. We have the resident Nuggets fan on here. And I think a lot of people are going to listen to this podcast and go, wait, there's Nuggets fans out there in these streets? (laughs) Because of the fact that the Nuggets just seem to not get that much love in the national media. You have the Zach Lowe's of the world that really pump their chest to kind of make, uh, you know, a real stand for the Jokic's and stuff like that in terms of just like his overall, you know, prowess as an NBA player, but also just the Nuggets being a dangerous team when healthy. I think, you know, um, I had this conversation with someone, someone else about this idea of, you know, forgetting the caliber of who a guy is because they're injured. And I think guys like Michael Porter Jr. Ooh. and especially Jamal Murray fall Speak into this category. It. So I'm going to use this as an opportunity because I, I, I sneakily already knew that this was going to be one of your teams in terms of your uh, in terms <laughs> of your West and Eastern Conference dark horses. I knew this was going to be the West one. So this is the perfect chance to give you the floor where we could talk about the Denver Nuggets, bro, because I think plus 20, uh, 2050 is way too low. And Plus 2050 in the Western Conference, according to this, would make them the fifth team in the West, which I think is a pretty low ceiling for them. All right. There's so many thoughts running through my head. First of all, very disrespectful to say that the Lakers are better than this team, first of all, and have better odds of winning a championship when they couldn't even make the playoffs last year. We talk about... We talk about... The Nuggets missing their guys, right? And you know, when and you know, when MVP discourse is brought up, people are like, Oh, Jokic had his first one was a fraud because everyone was hurt or whatever, and then the second one was just black. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. The man took a team with Bones Highland, Jeff Green, Aaron Gordon, Will Barton, Jamichael Green. Faku Campazo, who was at one point a starting center on this team or a starting point guard. 48 wins. Playoffs. Took a game off the Warriors, who were the champions. There's I I hate that this team always has to prove themselves more than any other team has to just to get consideration. Right? Because we can look at the Clippers, who are the third team on this list right now. And we were just slandering them for blowing a 3-1 lead. Mm. But they get the benefit of the doubt just because they have the two superstars instead of the one. When in actuality, the Nuggets... I'm, I'm going to put my chest out. 
The Nuggets roster is constructed better than like 95% of the league. And I mean that wholeheartedly. Because when you take a look at the roster from top to bottom. Yes, we got to go through it. Because they made, let, some, they, let me they made some moves this summer that was a little quiet. Bro, you pick up Bruce Brown, who fits right into the scheme of being a cutter, being a corner three-point shooter, being a willing passer off of the pick and roll, and being a good perimeter defender as well, who can also at times go down low and defend the paint a little bit. Mm-hmm. We pick up Contavious Caldwell-Pope, who no one talked about this trade. And I was very surprised because the guy is a 40% three-point shooter. He's a lockdown perimeter defender, and that's literally all we need. Mm -hmm. We have the offense. We have the Jamal Murrays. We have the MPJs. We have the Jokic, who literally does everything that we need him to. And he didn't have tools last year. And then you give him tools that have been proven. KCP was on that Lakers title run. Bruce Brown was acting like the second best player on the Nets last postseason. Why do, we, why do we discount the Nuggets? I've been trying to rack my brain around why this team gets disrespected so much when on paper and in past experience, coming back from 3-1 twice in the same postseason, taking a game off the Warriors, competing with the Suns until Jamal Murray got hurt last postseason. Why don't we get the benefit of the doubt? With a two-time MVP, with two 20-point-per-game scorers that shoot from the field and 40% from three. Why do we get discounted when our team is now at its most versatile it's ever been? We can think back to our Western Conference Finals run in the bubble. Who was on our team? We had Paul Millsap, who was a good two-way player. We had Jeremy Grant, who was a good two-way player at the time. And we had everyone else just filling their role as well. And that was, man, this was all before Jokic even took his MVP leap. Facts. In the time, the last time the Nuggets got to the Western Conference Finals, since then, Jokic has won two MVPs and has become a top three player in the league. All while not having a healthy roster. What are we even talking about here, man? They they pick up Christian Brown in the draft, who's going to be a, a good impact player off the bench this year. Another good size 6'6", six, six, uh, two-way wing. Another thing that we've needed. There's been an emphasis around the league on two-way players and two-way wings. Because, I mean, you see the market for them. KCP just signed a $15 million extension. That's the type of, that's that's it right there. We're filling our roster with all these things while keeping the same core. And we're not looked at as at least somewhat of a favorite. Because the Clippers happen to have Kawhi and Paul George, even though they've been proven to sell in the playoffs. Because the Lakers have LeBron and AD but the rest of their lineup is garbage. And the other teams, sure. Philly, Miami, I'm okay with that. Golden State, Milwaukee, sure. Whatever. But to have it line up to where we are the we have the fifth best odds to win the chip in the West, it's a, it's very disrespectful. It's very disrespectful to me. And so I really want to piggyback off of that by saying that I feel as though and you listed out a lot of their offseason moves, and I think that's huge because you also talk about the fact that in the midst of all of it, they really didn't give up much to get better, right? Monte Not Morris, Monte Morris, and Will Barton were the only real casualties of war. You could argue that Will Barton was really only a filler out of the fact that, you know, when you talk about Will Barton's skill set for that team, he was just basically 
the Nuggets secondary score next year, like last year. It was yeah. his his only thing was to go get buckets because he wasn't playing defense. And a, not a lick. And outside of that, you guys didn't have any other real offensive creators outside of Jokic. So you just had one guy who was a microwave scorer, as they would call him. And then Monte Morris, him, I think he's a solid rotational point guard. But I think making that decision is not too risk a when you talk about the fact that I believe that the move first off signifies the belief in Bones Island in year two. Absolutely, I think that's number one. Is that it, that signifies that they think that the kid's going to take another step and that that's going to put him in a situation where he could be their secondary guard behind Jamal Murray and feel comfortable with that. But I also think in a way, right? I think that also should give a a signal because we haven't heard a lot about this. I think that also, in a sense, probably signaled that Jamal Murray's going to be ready. You know, because they've been very cautious with yeah, him. Yeah, I think that that also signifies that he's going to be ready out the gate, or at least somewhere relatively around opening night, to the point that they're going to have a serviceable roster. The Bruce Brown thing, I think, is huge. The 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 KCP thing, I think, is huge because I think, I mean, yes, the offensive creation thing was the the team's big question last year, but we knew like we knew the reason why, right? It wasn't like exactly. it wasn't like we it wasn't <laughs> like we didn't have the answer to the test and we just refused to ignore them. We knew exactly what it was. It just was not there was nothing you could do about it. The defensive question was significant and it's been addressed now. Now, how much of a needle mover is this? That that is to be that is to be determined. I will say that much. But I think that you guys grabbed players that at least fit the mold of a scheme that you're trying to develop. And I think showing some semblance of a pathway is much better than simply saying, oh, we're getting MPJ and Jamal Murray back. We're just going to outscore everybody now because you're going to see what the offense now really looks like, because that's complacency to me. To me, that's complacency is internal improvement by just getting two guys you didn't have for most of last season back and saying that's going to be the answer. I think Mm -hmm. that's I think that's being complacent. Grabbing guys like KCP and being able to grab Bruce Brown on a favorable contract, actually, too. I think those are very solid on the margin moves that show that you understand you are self-aware as a team in terms of your yep. strengths and weaknesses. And so I think that's a great point. But I want to turn this to go to something that you that you finished off on, and I want you to actually speak on it because you asked, but I want to know your actual thoughts, like your individual thoughts on it, which is why do you think people sleep on the Nuggets, though? I really wish I had, like, a more concrete answer. Mm-hmm. But I think it – a lot of it, I believe, stems from the Jokic hate, mm. I guess, because I don't know if people necessarily hate him, but it's just like they look at the MVPs, they think it's fraudulent, and they kind of just discount it for what it is. Mm. Like they can acknowledge that he's a really good player, but they just won't acknowledge how much he impacts winning on that level. Mm. Part of it is also MPJ, because there is that injury history and the... <clears throat> The only thing that we've really seen from him at the professional level is the 19 points per game on uh, like 62% true shooting or something like that. He out before he got the payday. He went crazy. Facts. He went crazy. But but I would understand if people just brought up the, the point that, okay, well, I'm worried about MPJ being the third option just because of availability and stuff, right? Because fit... That's that's a moot point. He he fits so well. Him and Jamal Murray are literally the perfect counterparts to Nikola Jokic. Mm-hmm. But 
people don't come with that. They just say, oh, I'm not impressed with the Nuggets. And it's like they don't. That's where I step in because the people don't understand how the how we scheme, first of all, and how all of these pieces are going to fit. Because, sure, if you're looking on paper, some people might be able to discount Bruce Brown because he's not that elite of a scorer or he's not the absolute best perimeter defender. They might look at KZP as an aging star or whatever who's touching 30 and we just gave an extension to. Um, But they don't actually look at the fit, man. Mm -hmm. And part of that become like part of the reason we're being discounted is because of lack of knowledge. I believe it is. Mm. And and not actually realizing how well these pieces are going to work together, especially given that the superstar that they're working around is one of the most passive, one of the most unselfish, one of the most clutch, and one of the absolute best players the league has seen. Mm. It's a it's a lot for them to process because we did make we did make three moves, I believe, in total, KCP, Bruce Brown, and DeAndre Jordan. So it's like on paper, you're looking at those three and it's like, well, all right, cool. But hey, man, all you got to do is just you watch a game, see the problems that they were having and then realize, oh, wait, these two guys are going to come in and actually fix those problems Mm -hmm. like at a pretty high level, too. So to answer the question, I guess fully is just lack of knowledge on the on how the Nuggets actually play. And also just discounting Jokic as a as an MVP winner. Yeah, I think that the the Jokic element is very important because I think that this is something that's been discussed a lot is the idea of the MVP not necessarily reflecting what we perceive an MVP to mm-hmm. look like, if you understand right. what I'm saying, right? Typically, we associate, you know, the the best player in the league mode, the face of the league mode with mm-hmm. the most physically dominant, the most athletic, the most skilled individual in the league. But there's still a overall archetype that you are looking for. Although, despite the fact, maybe not the athleticism aspect, but although I would say Jokic fits a lot of the criteria that we associate with MVP caliber players, the overall mold of Jokic in comparison to past MVPs is one that we do not have a real representation of prior Mm. to now. And I think that lack of knowledge statement you made is really important because people are very passive when it comes to the idea of accepting change, right? And this is, this this is, obviously, I don't want to get deeper than basketball when I talk about this, but I say all of that to say that, like, the league is transitioning to a point where either you can play or you cannot. We found out about this throughout the postseason on a series-to-series basis that guys who are simply specialists do not get playing time anymore. We watch Max Struess. Robinson. Thank you. I was literally about to say. (laughs) We watch Max Struess and Gabe Vincent, two guys who occupied a lot of the G League team for Miami, as well as being guys who were considered more of bench rotational pieces, single-handedly outplay, outservice, Duncan Robinson, who after the very first series of the of the NBA playoffs, didn't play anymore. Mm-hmm. And Tyler Hero, they found out throughout the season, Tyler Hero works best in a six-man role. They felt as though they could not comfortably start him, and he played at his best. 
I think that another thing you could say is if you look at the Boston Celtics makeup, right? I think a lot of what made them look so dangerous heading into the postseason, especially after getting Derek White, is you looked at everybody at least through the top eight that they have. And they've expanded that a little bit more by grabbing Gallinari and Malcolm Brogdon. You look Mm -hmm. across the floor and you say nobody is a net negative. Everybody provides something on the offensive end while not being a turnstile defensively. So everybody is a a two-way player in some facsimile. Does it mean that they're all elite? No. But being able to be serviceable on both sides of the floor means much more now in today's league than it did before where the term specialist was starting to define guys. I watched, shout out to my guy Otto Porter, I watched my boy get a bag up off of the Washington Wizards after shooting 40% from three for two seasons in a row, got the bag, and now he's just your everyday regular Joe Smo as a 3D, 3D wing. I don't think he's a yeah. bad player when I say that he's a Joe Smo, but I say that to say that was a guy who once was taken with the third overall pick, and now he is considered as a legitimate role player as a solid 3 and D wing. Duncan Robinson is a guy who got paid four years, 80 million and got turned into Casper the ghost in the playoffs last season. I'm saying this to say that when you look at the Denver nuggets and you look at what they provide with the roster that they've constructed now, I think with the moves they've made, they are putting emphasis on the transition of the league that they have a all-star MVP caliber player at the top supporting two guys behind him, similar to how Milwaukee does, you know, with Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton. And then I would say that when you look at roster construction further beyond that trio at the top, they have guys who fill out and all know their role. And that's the way the NBA is going to continue to thrive, I think. Thank you for bringing up the uh, Milwaukee Bucks, because I was I was thinking about this, like, why don't we as a team that has already proven we can get to the Western Conference Finals or make a, a really strong push in the playoffs mm-hmm. when we add on to that without really giving up pieces? Right. Why don't we get the same respect? Mm-hmm. You you brought up a good point. Superstar, two supporting pieces. The Milwaukee Bucks literally just won a championship with that kind of construction. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's a great point. And I mean, you're not talking about a player in Giannis Antetokounmpo that's any much more sig- like he he's not that much better than Jokic on a, I think that if you go tit for tat I'm saying I'm taking Giannis as the best player in the world right Absolutely. now Absolutely. But I'm yeah, saying yeah, yeah. that to say that the last four MVPs have went to two the two guys we're talking about right now. So then the question just comes to who are you taking Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton next to MPJ and Jamal Murray. I think that's a fair conversation to have. I think mm-hmm. some people would probably go with the Bucks because of the versatility that they have with the defensive end from both of those guys while also knowing they have 20 point per game scores. I think that MPJ's injury makes him a little bit more of a question mark. Jamal Murray is not a two-way player, but we know that when it comes to the offense, if he's going He's going, and it's, it's hey, going to be hey, for it gets a while. It's crazy yeah. when Jamal Murray gets going. And it's going to be going for a while. So I say all that to say, you know, I think that I, this is another reason, like I said, that when I came up with this idea of doing this this specific topic, having you want to talk about the different nuggets, I think is huge because not only from a media standpoint in terms of, you know, just the, the lack of coverage for a team like mm-hmm. that, but I also think being able to have this conversation about a, what it means to be an MVP in the league now, I think is very important. But B, I think being able to have this conversation about 
the importance of roster f- roster building, right? Not super team construction. Roster it's a, it's a lot start, man. It's a lot. It's a lot more efficient, and we've seen it pay better dividends in the last few seasons in terms of having that lead superstar. Because you do, you need that. But being Absolutely. able to have viable pieces around him. We saw that with Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors last season. I think that when you look at past teams like the Milwaukee Bucks beforehand, I would even argue that Toronto Raptors team with Kawhi Leonard, they all fall into the same category. And I, I think that the Denver Nuggets, at least from a roster construction standpoint, really should be in the conversation as being built similarly to some of those teams. So I think that's really important. I think that's really important to be able to actually talk about that. Yeah, it's look, I'll I'm actually kind of happy that we're getting underrated because, first of all, that means expectations are a little bit lower. Mm-hmm. So we don't really have as much pressure from outside sources as a lot of other teams are, like the Lakers or the Bucks or the Warriors or whatever. Um, but two, it's like, okay, we kind of just get to do our own thing mm-hmm. during the regular season. So, long, like, my expectation and what I would be happy with is like at least 50, 52, 53, 54 wins. Mm-hmm. I'm perfectly okay with that. As long as we get a, a top four seed, which is, I think, what we are, like, confidently, I'm chilling. Right. But other than, like, let, hey, let him doubt us. Because then you're going to be surprised when the MVP plays like an MVP. And then he gets his tools back. And now he's playing even more like an MVP. Right. And I think, and so I'm actually going to use that as a way to transition to my Western Conference team. And it's funny that we got to spend so much time on the Nuggets, but I think the Western Conference is actually going to, when it comes to dark horses, I think the Western Conference is a lot more compelling of a topic than the East. I think when we get to the East, we're going to kind of be grasping for straws. Let's be real. You know, (laughs) thankfully it's out of the top, past the top six. So there's some interesting squads to talk about still. But my Western Conference team that I had as a dark horse is actually New Orleans. Uh, the New Orleans Pelicans is a team that I've kind of been keeping my eye on pretty closely just because they beat a lot of just really bad circumstances last year, right? Obviously, Zion Williamson not playing after many, including David Griffin himself, saying that this man was going to be ready come time to start the season, and then he did not play a single game. I think was a real punch in the mouth. I think starting out the season, what they start three and 13, I believe terrible to kick off the season. And it honestly was not improving in the early, the earlier months of the season, but this team really found out about themselves by experimenting with different things. I think Herb Jones, for example, was an unsung MVP for this team. I think when he started, when they started playing him at the two as a defensive guard for them, as a big, as a guy who's actually more of a big wing, I think that was, that was very telling because it showed that they're going to focus on having a strong defensive unit. I think having a lead guy in Brandon Ingram is still something that's very try and true to being able to have a championship caliber roster. The question will, of course, be, can B.I. actually be the best player on a championship team? I think the only thing is you have Zion Williamson returning. And I think when you have when you talk about a healthy Zion Williamson, I think less I think less people have questions about what a healthy Zion Williamson brings to a championship caliber roster. When you go through the entirety of it, of course, beyond Zion and B.I., C.J. McCollum, who a lot of people were down on the transaction between Mm -hmm. him, uh, between them and Portland, that really paid dividends in the second half of the season. It started out a little slow when they first acquired him, but as things started to uh, start to really take form, 
that team started to play together and it started to make a lot more sense. Um, grabbing Dyson Daniels in the draft, I think was a very great glue guy pickup um, at, uh, at the eight spot and I, or the seven, eight spot. And I think that if he plays, cause I know he went down with an injury in summer league. If he plays, I think he's a guy who fits in right away. I think they got like a shot doctor or like, I think they got the old San Antonio shooting coach in new Orleans now, which if they put Dyson Daniels with that man and he starts shooting somewhere between 35 and 37% uh, from three while also having the kind of tools he has on the offensive and defensive end as a guy who I thought in the G League Ignite stood out for just being a dude who was never – he never had a quiet game. Even if he never mm. – even if he did not fill out, you know – the, the points, if he, even if he wasn't the Jaden Hardy, you know, the guy, you know, the guy in the G League that's dropping 20 and 30 a night. He was a guy that if you looked across the box score, you felt his presence regularly. And I think that's what New Orleans needs. Jose Alvarado made a name for himself throughout the, throughout the season and especially in the playoffs. I think center is where things are the most tricky because I still wonder about Jonas Valanciunas next to Zion. Mm-hmm. Um, I worry about the development aspect of Jackson Hayes. Larry Nance Jr. is an interesting guy in all of this because he was a guy that was really dinged up last year. And I think he brings a lot of defensive versatility at the 3-4 spot for them and even small ball five for them. I think they just have a lot of pieces that A, work, a lot of pieces that B, can be utilized to facilitate a trade if need be to make a swing at somebody. And I think C, they have the wild card that not many people can say. They have a dude who averaged 27 points per game on the most craziest efficiency possible re-entering the roster. Year. Second year in the league. And he's re-entering the roster. That that's I mentioned I mentioned the offensive internal upgrade mm-hmm. for the Nuggets. This this is Zion's that Zion uh, this is uh New Orleans internal upgrade. It's reacquiring Zion Williamson to the roster. So basically I want your thoughts on new Orleans. And I know it's a little bit of a swing when you talk about a lot of these teams that fall into the dark horse. I think that new Orleans is a team that might still be a season away from really being scary. But when you look at the roster construction and what they did last season, pushing Phoenix in that first round too, it just makes you wonder. I I am so glad you brought up the Pelicans, man. If it wasn't, if I didn't pick the nuggets, it would have been the Pelicans. Mm. I, I just, and it's weird. There are a couple points I want to touch on. First of all, the difference in how we talk about a team like the Pelicans, because it goes back to the point of being more confident in teams that take their time with roster construction, mm-hmm. as opposed to just worrying about the names that are on the roster. Mm-hmm. And they they kind of developed Brandon Ingram into being this also like a facilitator. Right. Right. We saw we saw it in the playoffs against the Suns. He was he was the engine mm-hmm. of that offense. CJ McCollum was there. Sure. He was helping out, though. Right. It was Brandon Ingram's show. He dropped, what, 37 one game against mm-hmm. the Suns? Yep. And I, I talked about this with a friend. I have the Pelicans as a top five seed next year. I feel you, bro. I feel I, you. Because I think like, they're going to care. I think I think when you look at the regular season makeup, I think that they're going to be – I think they fall into that category similar to the Nuggets. And I'll even say the Minnesota Timberwolves too. I think the Minnesota mm. Timberwolves are going to be a team that takes the regular season very seriously. And Rudy Gobert has never been on a regular season team that wasn't top four or a top five True. in terms of making noise. And I think that Rudy is actually going to be playing on a roster that is actually – 
the best constructed roster he's played on. I think Utah's mm-hmm. had some interesting individual talents, but as a in terms of roster construction, along with having Anthony Dave, uh, Anthony Edwards um, and Carl Anthony Towns, with the upside that those two have together, especially Anthony Edwards after what we saw last season. Oh, man. Because once he started taking pride on the defensive end, it really started to show the trajectory he could be on. That's a team. I think these teams are those squads, especially in the West, that are going to take the, the regular season seriously, and they're going to shoot for seeding as something that's important to them and Mm -hmm. so i think that i think that new orleans is going to be one of those teams that's going to want to shoot out like a cannon when the season starts the pelicans got that taste i've been talking about it since the series ended Mm. that was a super winnable series for the pelicans agreed they they competed like despite what the final scores say Mm. they were in those games right and and they they showed that they had the tools to compete with any type of top tier roster because like we have been saying and reiterating they have filled so many different voids in terms of of what type of player they need on the roster. Mm. So yeah, putting Herb Jones on Chris Paul is going to annoy him. <laughs> it's going to cause some problems, and it did. Chris Paul still had a Chris Paul game, but he's a Hall of Famer. Mm. That's to be expected. Hall of Famer versus a rookie. At some point, the rookie's gonna break. Right. But another year of Herb development, someone who I think is going to be an all-defensive first-teamer next year, mm. a Brandon Ingram development as a playmaker, as a facilitator, CJ as a, a comfortable third option. Because if you're moving CJ McCollum to your third option, I really love your odds. I'm, I'm, you, you're talking about Zion. We can, we can talk about the 27 on 60 all day long. This team is primed. They've got that taste of the of the big stage. They've got the fans behind them. They've got really high energy guys that are ready are ready and willing to do whatever it takes to either prove themselves or help the team win. Right. And they're they're just set up for a lot of success. And honestly, I'm just super high on them, man. I, I want them to make that push. That's more like partially why I have them a top five seed is because I want them to be there. And I think they have all of the tools necessary to do it. And like you were saying, like the regular season is a different monster. Some teams take it more seriously than others. Pelicans are one of those teams. Yeah, I think that the Pelicans are an interesting conversation because of the fact that they are going to be getting a really elite talent back. Um, You know, like I said before, we were talking about the Nuggets in terms of being able to make that internal acquisition. Just being able to know that that alone can make all the difference for a squad. Mm -hmm. I think that having that other option, that that guy who has the capability to be a lead option or really when you talk about Zion Williamson, he's a guy that can create so much of his offense without having to be actively involved, which I think is also another thing that just makes them even more intriguing because you can still have B.I. and C.J. McCollum be primary ball handlers and know that they don't have to force feed Zion in order to be able to create points because the dude does it just strictly off of activity, you know? Yeah. So I think that's I think that's all really interesting points when you talk about it. We're going to transition over to the Eastern Conference, and I hate to be a hater because, again, I said this earlier at the top that, like, the <laughs> Eastern Conference is a little bit lighter when it comes to this. So apologies to yeah. anybody that's a fan of an Eastern Conference team that uh, doesn't get as much enthusiasm out of this group as uh, we did in the West. But, uh, Rashad, what is your what is your dark horse contender out of the Eastern Conference? I would say it's the Miami Heat mm. because I, I just feel like they're the team that's closest to putting it all together. 
right so like, i mean they lost pj tucker obviously but then you get the the um the development of max Struess and gabe vincent right so you have two more pieces that with another offseason of development are going to be able to slide even more into this lineup and fill their roles even better mm. jimmy butler has only gotten better <laughs> bam out of bio is I hate being tricked by gym videos, but Bam Adebayo <laughs> has started taking three. <laughs> he started shooting them. I'm like, okay, well, if Bam comes back with a three and kind of fills the void that PJ Tucker left in terms of being a corner three guy or, or just shooting the three ball in general, they're going to be set up very, very well because Bam obviously brings all the other stuff. He's a really good passer at the center position. He's mobile enough on defense, versatile enough on defense to cover the interior and also the perimeter at a really elite level. Hmm. And that team defense just looks really good. Hmm. And we we talk about the specialists being played off the floor in the playoffs, but when it comes to the regular season, you're damn you're damn sure you're going to play Duncan Robinson. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're going to want that three point shooting on the floor. So I feel like they're just set up better than what the other realistic, I guess, dark horse would be, which would be like Sixers or whatever. But like, yeah, I just think the Heat are the closest to to overcoming that hump. Yeah, I think you make a really great point about the fact that Miami is already pretty well constructed enough to be able to make this happen. And you look at a lot of the things that just didn't work in their favor last season, Kyle Lowry having, you know, his injury issues and kind of off the court concerns as well. That kind of kept him out of games, throwing him off of rhythm. And I think that was big. He sounds like he's very much more engaged heading into this season. It sounds like he was also uh a little bit more disappointed with himself following the end to po- the postseason last year to the point that I think he set individual expectations for himself that are going to really elevate his game next year. And he kind of has to, right? He's on a three-year deal and one year's already passed. And he even phrased it, he even said himself that he felt as though it was a wasted season for him. Um, so I think they have a significant chip on their shoulder. They were literally one Jimmy Butler pull-up three away from maybe us – having a completely different conversation about everything in terms of not just, you know, the NBA finals matchup, but maybe even who wins. Right. So I think Miami is in a really interesting spot with that. I'm going to take the team that you mentioned as at the back half of that being Philly. Obviously they don't fall as a a real dark horse. They're actually seventh in this list for some, for some context, literally these teams are back to back um, in terms of just, you know, the lineups I literally is Philly at seven Miami at eight. But then, I mean, if you go through the listing after that, Lakers nine, One, Denver two, three, ten, three, Memphis, five, Dallas, Minnesota. six straight Western Conference I mean, teams. After that, the <laughs> next the next best team you get on in this grouping is the Toronto Raptors at plus four thousand three hundred and seventy five. Like, that's crazy. I think that the, the odds makers know that basically after some of the big juggernauts in the Eastern Conference. The well gets very dry. Atlanta made one of the bigger uh, trade acquisitions of the offseason, and they're below my Chicago Bulls, who I felt like didn't really do much this offseason, <laughs> to be real, besides, of course, reacquiring Zach Levine, which is huge. But hey, you still, guys got Andre Drummond. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to oh see your reaction God. when I said <laughs> D- different, Different pod, Rashad. Different pod, bro. <laughs> Disrespectful disrespectful we're not doing that on this recording that's that's a different that's a different episode we'll, we'll deep dive on the chicago bulls trauma that i'm gonna have this year at a different oh at a different God. time 
But when you just talk about the Sixers, I think that they position themselves. I mean, quite literally, they're under tampering investigations. They've qu- quite literally, yeah, literally. Set, <laughs> quite literally set themselves up to be in the proper position to be able to make a real run at this thing. James Harden waiting until the last minute to be able to sign his extension in order to be able to get guys like Daniel House and P.J. Tucker brought onto this roster. Two guys who can shoot the three, step out of the defensive end um, on the perimeter specifically and really guard up. Uh, obviously having Joel Embiid, who's going to continue to be motivated after coming in second place for the second time in MVP um, and had a legitimate argument, you know, both seasons to be able to win that MVP as well. Um, Pair that with James Harden, who, again, uh, you mentioned it when talking about Bam Adebayo. You don't want to talk about, you know, gas and off-season pictures and off-season workout videos, but based off what we've seen, this is probably the most engaged that I've seen James Harden in recent memory yep. in terms of committing to the grind heading into the season. Now, the the hope is that it all comes into fruition if you're a Sixers fan because that's one of those things where, again, there was a lot of narrative after the postseason was over that James Harden was washed. There was He is officially turned into the facilitating guy. He almost over overly accepted the point guard role as a facilitator for yeah. – um, for that team coming off of being, you know, the main point guard for the Brooklyn Nets beforehand. And it almost kind of zapped the real offensive star power that we know he play he typically plays with. I think that he knows that he has a lot to prove. And I I think he also understands, you see it in the pay cut he was willing to take, that the window is only but so much open left. I think there's only but so much time left for him. There's a lot of guys in this league that I feel like are under that same gun. Chris Paul is another interesting one in this this conversation when you talk about guys who it's like, if not now, will ever, right? If it, yeah, right. You know, so I think that, I think Philly is playing with a lot. They're playing with a lot to prove. And I think that's one of those things that when you talk about dark horses, that's what makes a team extremely scary is when you know that they are, even when they have high expectations, like I think Philly does in comparison to like the Denver Nuggets, for example, who are a little bit more under the radar. I think although Philly is on in, in the spotlight a bit more from an expectation standpoint, I still think that they probably have the biggest chip on their shoulder of any of the teams we say are real Eastern Conference contenders outside of maybe Brooklyn, who after who you could argue their situation is more due to self-infliction. The fiasco of this summer has caused them to have the kind of pressure that they have. Obviously, them having Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving on the same team creates its own narrative. But right. the storylines of this offseason have significantly heightened that to an umpteenth degree, right? But I would say outside of them, I think that Philly probably has the most pressure on them out of any team in the Eastern Conference to really make a run of this championship. And that's including a Boston Celtics team that literally just came off of, you know, making the finals and actually getting better after the fact. Right. And the thing with James Harden, like I, I talked about this um, like two weeks ago. And I, w- I was talking about James Harden in a video about players that I'd be really excited to see next season. And the main reason why I would be really excited to watch James Harden succeed or, or play really well is because like there's so much doubt surrounding his name. Right. I want him to overcome all of that. I want I want James Harden to be a champion like straight up. I think he's he's one of the few players in this league that has deserved it. He is at that skill level where he can be a championship type one type one B type thing. Mm. And I think at this point in his career, 
aside from the one year in um in Houston where they went like 65 and 17 and then lost in 7 to the Warriors this is pretty much the best constructed roster he's had around him definitely like he he's got the defenders around him to cover for his lack of defense he's got the second superstar teammate in Joel Embiid who's going to be able to carry some of the offensive load and i just i think right now like you were saying the verbal commitment that he made to to trying to make a championship push is really huge mm. because it shows accountability, right? It right. shows that this guy knows what went wrong mm. and what his own flaws were, which is the most important part because it's easy to point the finger and be like, all right, well, our team wasn't good because that guy wasn't performing or like take the Sixers after the, the Hawks series two years ago, for example. Ben Simmons was the, that was the scapegoat right there. Right. James Harden made himself the scapegoat. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge responsibility. And that's why I, I like him even more now. And I'm really hoping that they actually make a strong push. Yeah, definitely. I think that Philly is in a really interesting situation. And I like you said, I think that accountability factor, that's something that this team is really going to have to embody this year. Because yeah. with the whole Ben Simmons fiasco, like you said, there was always somebody to be able to point the finger to. I think the Lakers are in a similar situation, right? As long as mm-hmm. Russell Westbrook is on the team, they know who they can lean on to take the brute of the blame. Uh, I think that Philly is in a similar, was, or at least was in a similar circumstance. And I think now that they've taken the accountability upon themselves to understand that now they've created the roster that's viable enough to make a legitimate Eastern Conference run and they have the players to do it. And now the question is, are the two guys in Joel Embiid and James Harden, who we have questions about in the postseason, are they going to play up to par to what we've seen in the past? I mean, it's a huge, it's a, it's a tall task when you talk about the the depth of the Eastern Conference, at least in terms of the top, uh, mm-hmm. the, guy, the the teams you're going to have to really go through to make that kind of run. But I think at the same time, they have the talent to do that. That's uh, going to take us into transitioning to the last topic of uh, the episode. And it's kind of a brief one. We're not even going to like get too in-depth with our picks on these yeah. ones. But it's essentially, who do we believe are going to rise and fall in each conference. So the way that we're going to put this is we're each going to like quickly pick the team that we think is going to fall out of the top four in the Eastern Conference based on the standings last season and who that did not make the top four um, has the most likelihood to rise into that top four this next season. Um, And then we'll, of course, do the same thing with the Western Conference. So, Rashad, I'll let you go first. Uh, We're starting with the Eastern Conference, correct? Mm -hmm. All right. Let me let me pull up the NBA standing so I'm not speaking out of out of turn here. Um I feel like it's going to be harder for teams out east to either fall or rise because more or less the teams all stayed the same. Mm-hmm. Um that being said, the team that I feel like would make the biggest leap in terms of being outside of the playoffs is the Cleveland Cavaliers. Ooh, I like because that I game. I just I like you know game. I really like Darius Garland mm. as a point guard. I really like Evan Mobley for what he did in his rookie year and how impactful he was as a defender at a, at the power forward position, being able to guard elite point guards already while also protecting the paint. You have a Jared Allen who's locked up under contract for a while, a very good vertical lob threat for Darius Garland. You still have Karis LeVert who's going to be able to um, contribute in a purely scoring factor. And whatever happens with Colin Sexton, if you trade him away or whoever you get back in return, 
it's going to be a positive for the Cavaliers. Mm-hmm. I think last year the injury bug hit them at the very worst time because if you look at it, they were only two games out of the sixth spot, right. and they were holding on to that spot for a very long time. They were a playoff team for a very long time, right. and they just got unlucky. So I think another year of development or another year of health, they're good. Mm-hmm. I think they're going right back up there. And in terms of the team that you think is going to fall out of the top four? Yeah, that one's tough because these these guys are the ones right now most likely to fall out. Of I, top that's four. what I'm saying. Like I'm, bro. The second seed was tied three ways. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that's what I'm saying, bro. I mean, it's it's legitimately crazy. I think the Eastern Conference. I I mean, we talked about the depth of the Eastern Conference. You know, from a talent basis earlier, but. At the end of the day, the, the East is a bloodbath, bro. It's going to be crazy really regardless. Is. I don't think that there is – I don't think the contendership in the Eastern Conference goes past the top four teams that we saw last season in terms of going mm-hmm. into next year. But I think in terms of the competitive fervor between each conference – oh, the Eastern Conference is is a gauntlet this year for sure. Yeah. I would hate to be an Eastern Conference team at this point. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, the, per, the team that I think is going to fall out most realistically – I would probably say the Heat because they're really the only team that didn't get better out of the other three. I agree. I agree so like the Celtics, way. right. The Celtics added Brogdon and Gallinari like you touched on earlier. We just talked about the Sixers acquisitions. The Bucks are a really strong team. They just needed to get healthy. Right. And the Heat, even though it was one piece mm-hmm. in P.J. Tucker, they lost something. The other teams really didn't. Yeah, and so I, I guess de facto it would be the Heat. Yeah, and I mean I agree with you when talk in terms of talking about the Heat because, like you said, I mean one of the bigger things too is they not only did they not get better, but like we don't even know who plays the four for them. Right. I mean, do is it more a senior again? Because that was that was interesting <laughs> for the time that it lasted. So I mean, the Heat Heat are the team that probably out of the top four teams that we have probably have the biggest question mark. You could argue maybe the Bucks, but I think as long as you have Giannis, they're going to be crazy in the regular season. But their depth yep. is booty, and that's one thing yeah. that does make me really worry. Because just like in the playoffs, I think that if they suffer a major injury. I don't know That's if they're it. going to be able to be like be able to overcome that. So I would say the Heat is my answer, but the Bucks are they're at least a team you should flirt with when you think about the idea of a team that might take a step back. I think the Eastern Conference is going to be filled with teams that might not move up the standings, but they are going to be better when you watch them play. They're going to be much mm-hmm. better as they're going to play much better, but they might not be you know, better in conjunction to the rest of the standings around them. We're going to do the same thing for the Western Conference. Again, I'll let you go first. The team that you think is most likely to fall out of the top four and the team that uh, you think that was not in the top four last season has the most likely to jump into it. Okay. So the falls were, it's actually pretty simple for the Western Conference because I would say the Grizzlies are going to take the biggest drop because mm. we last year, 56 wins, second seed. They're going to have uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. out for four to six months. He's not projected to be back until December range. Right. Right. And that doesn't even account for the time that he has to recover on the court. Mm-hmm. So I feel like with the, the Grizzlies, they're just going to they're going to be have to be playing catch up mm-hmm. from the very beginning. And I, they're just their roster just is not as strong as it was last year. Right. They lost Kyle Anderson. They lost Anthony Melton, who were both high level contributing factors on this team. Right. And they're also losing Jaron Jackson Jr. Um, in terms of leap, we touched on it earlier, but the Pelicans is where I where I um picked because I mean we said all the things, man. Their their roster is just ready, and I think they're they're really primed to make a big push, especially in the regular season. 
Yeah, I think that those are great picks. I'm actually going to go with the Mavericks as the team I think most likely to fall out. I think that the Grizzlies have shown enough grit to be able to survive major injuries. John Morant, despite the fact that they have other ball handlers, is their offensive engine, and they missed out on him in significant time frames and were able to survive that. Eight and two without him during the regular season blew out the Golden State Warriors by, what, 50 or something in a postseason game despite having John Morant out. They've shown that they are able to sustain success with their depth throughout the regular season, and they are a team that is significantly deep while also being young. So they they can fly around and make it work on back-to-backs and, you know, long uh, away game stretches, long road game stretches and things like that. So I think that the Grizzlies actually have a makeup to be able to – survive some of the circumstances they're going into the season with. But Dallas, they losing Jalen Brunson, you would think when you say it out loud, should not seem that serious, Mm -hmm. but they are down one more ball handler and they didn't have that many to begin with. Um, Now it is pretty much him and Spencer Dinwiddie that uh, him being Luka Doncic um, and Spencer Dinwiddie being the only real guys I trust as real offensive creators for this team. And I literally think that, a, I think Luka Doncic is going to win MVP this year, and I think it's because he's literally going to have to be a god for this team to make the postseason. <laughs> so I think that although although I think he has the ability to play at god tier level in order to get this team mm-hmm. into the postseason, I don't think they're going to be able to get home court advantage in the process. And then the team that I think is going to take the most significant leap, and Rashad, you got to rock with me on this one. I've been trying to, I'm going to try to push this narrative on this podcast all season long. My biggest hot take of the 2022-23 season is that I think the Minnesota Timberwolves are going to be the number one seed in the Western Conference. Oh. I, I think that they are going to take that. I think when you talk about regular season play, this is not this is not saying they're going to be the best team in the West. This is not saying that they're going to come out of the Western Conference. We didn't even discuss them as a dark horse earlier. The Pelicans finished behind them last season, right? The Pelicans, I would actually argue, might have even put up a better fight against the Phoenix Suns than the Timberwolves did against uh, John Morant and the Memphis Grizzlies. And I think that, honestly, the Timberwolves had a much more winnable series when you yeah. look at the way those games played out. They were losing leads to John Morant and the Memphis Grizzlies in those series, games where they had significant control and just showed signs of youth that ended up biting them in the butt. I think that when you talk about regular season construction, again, Rudy Gobert, great defensive hub for the regular season. Of course, when it comes to the postseason, that's when a lot of the questions come out. But in terms of regular season play, Rudy Gobert is the best that that, that comes when it comes to the defensive end. I think, again, like I said earlier, I think from a roster construction standpoint, this is the best roster he's played on from a talent perspective. I believe in Anthony Edwards, legitimately. And I also think that Carl Anthony Towns, now that he's gotten to get a legitimate taste of the playoffs as a lead guy, because if we remember the last time they made the playoffs, he kind of was at bare at, at best 1B to Jimmy Butler around that time. I think last season he was that guy for them and he got a taste of what that was like, the good and the bad, when it came to both performing at a high level and also games where he underperformed. I think taking that and being able to reassess, last season was his first season coming off of a lot of off-the-court stuff that was a big heartache and a big headache, right? This is his first real off-season with clarity and he's coming off of one of his better seasons in the league. I think... Minnesota, like I mentioned earlier, is going to be a team that takes the regular season very seriously, and they have regular season players that are going to be interesting. So I'm pushing the narrative. I don't think Mm -hmm. I'm going to be right, 
I, I have a weird feeling about it, but I'm going to push the narrative that I believe that the Timberwolves are going to be like one of the biggest surprise teams of the 2022-23 season. Here, so that's so interesting. I've gotten a lot of like, pushback and I, I love hearing the responses because I think it's I think it's interesting on both fronts because I think everybody who doesn't agree has a good point. Yeah, and that's like, I can actually see where you're coming from with that because if you look at the rest of the Western Conference teams, like the the Nuggets are going to be dealing with rehabilitating players and working them back into the lineup. So they might have some games that they're going to drop. Mm-hmm. You're looking at the Grizzlies who are de facto going to drop from that second seed. So that opens up another spot right there. You have, like you said, you have the Dallas Mavericks dropping out. The Jazz got worse. Right. The route for the Timberwolves to actually hit the one seed it's there. It's there. I it's, think it's there. them, them, Phoenix and Memphis. I think are the three teams that are gonna like really be gunning for it. I think the Nuggets might as well, but I don't know if they're necessary. I I really think the Nuggets are not worried about seeding. If I'm telling you the truth, I don't think they're. Worried oh yeah, about no, no. I no, think no. if they get in the postseason healthy, they're good. I think they, mm-hmm. they they don't care. But I think some of these other teams genuinely care about being able to get home court advantage, and I think that it's really important to them in terms of being able to control their own destiny. I definitely think Phoenix cares. And I think that the Grizzlies as a young squad and similar to the Timberwolves as a young squad, almost rely on that when it comes to postseason mm. play. So I think teams that are going to really gun for it are the teams that I'm most likely to bet on for having a real opportunity to do so. See, you're the first person to actually back up the Timberwolves point because you're you're not the first person I've heard say that the Timberwolves are going to make like a super surprise push for the one seed or the two seed. Mm. But you're the only one that's actually explained it. <laughs> Everyone's kind of just going off the, oh, yeah, the Twin Towers, Rudy Gobert, everything's good. Cat's going to be a four. He's going to be a stretch four. He's going to fit right into where he is. Right. That's baseline stuff. Baseline. Very. You, you brought out the facts. You backed it up. Hey, these are the other teams I think they're going to push. Here's why I don't think these other teams are going to really make that push. And that's great because now I firmly understand and like it's kind of opened my mindset on the Timberwolves Mm -hmm. because I'll be honest. I didn't think they had a chance at the number one seed before you said that and before you listed out the reasons. (laughs) And then I started thinking, I'm like, okay, wait, these other teams might be dealing with too much stuff. (laughs) So they might just get there. Oh, man. It's like the Jazz. Making the one seed. That's what years I'm ago. saying, bro. It's if like, you look oh. at the circumstances, if you look at past circumstances with Rudy Gobert based teams, they have been oddly good. Oh my in the god, it really season. is Rudy Gobert. <laughs> They've been oddly good in the regular season as a top ten level defense in the regular season, along with guys who can just fill it up offensively, turn styles defensively. But Rudy Gobert is so good as a as a defensive deterrent that. They are able to just simply make it work. I think that the Minnesota Timberwolves have solid offensive talent while also having good translatable defensive talent that actually works around Rudy Gobert. So now you have Rudy and you give him better defensive talent while also knowing that they can score in high clips. Well, that's better than any other Utah team we've seen, at least in theory. It. You bring up so many good points, man. You're you're about to convert me <laughs> into a Timberwolves. I cannot do that. They're in my division. Oh, man. I cannot be a Timberwolves believer right oh, now. Man. I'm sorry. But I also really cannot stand that I understand it fully. <laughs> <laughs> it pains me right now because oh, I've made man. I made two back-to-back videos on the Rudy Gobert trade. Mm-hmm. And like I initially I was like, damn, this trade sucks. <laughs> they gave up so much garbage. Mm-hmm. 
I took a second look at it. Like, damn. It's basically just swapping out Jared Vanderbilt for Rudy Gobert. Exactly. Exactly. Like, I get it. I I get where people are coming from. Yeah. I mean, along with the fact that they have D-Lo still as a trade chip if they're feeling frisky. They didn't didn't give up the core pieces Mm. to get Rudy. And that was the biggest part. Like, yeah, just like you said, man, D-Lo can be dealt. That's a sizable contract that can yield some pretty interesting offers. Yeah, man. So with that being the case, I really appreciate being able to have this conversation with you. I think Dark Horses yes, is one of the more fun conversations to talk about because, man, I- I'm going to keep pushing this narrative only because I want people to understand how different I want this podcast to be. The national media has their favorites, man. They have their yep. favorite teams, their favorite players, and they have agendas where they have to be able to push for these squads because those are the teams that get ratings. Those are the teams that everybody is nationally, uh, you know, have an acquired taste for. But some of these other teams are going to be the ones that are going to really make noise in the postseason, even during the regular season. That's going to make you wonder just how competitive this NBA is going to be, not just this season, but moving forward. We saw it last season. Again, like I mentioned, the Timberwolves on the uptick. The Pelicans playing really strong last season. When you look at teams like the Boston Celtics, who have been knocking their head on the doorstep for a while now and then really kind of made good strides. My Chicago Bulls were the one seed for like a week. I'm just saying. Yeah, they were. I'm just saying. Yeah, they were. The Cleveland Cavaliers for the first time in a while are a non-LeBron James-led team, and people actually are thinking about them. I'm saying all this to say that when you talk about dark horses, it really gives us an opportunity to talk real basketball beyond just some of these teams that we kind of already know what's up with them. We know what they bring to the table. We know why they're at the top or we know why they're considered to be, you know, one of the better squads in the league. These other teams are the ones that when we look down the line and some of these 30 plus year old guys who we know are the greatest of all time or in the top 50s and still live and going when they're gone. The league is still safe because some of these teams are still some of these teams on the back nine have all star caliber players and they might not be talked about right now, but they're coming. They they gonna get their due. But they're trust coming. me, like they gonna get it, man. Yeah. So with that being the case, man, I want to give this opportunity to you to take the floor to, of course, plug your stuff again. Um, in order to be a you know, of course, share where everybody can find you, not just on YouTube, but of course on social media as well. Yeah. So. My YouTube channel is called The Drop Step. The Drop Step is one word. Well, so it's two words. Drop Step is one word itself. Um, my Instagram is shod.hoops. Um, I need to get more active on on Instagram. Me, actually. You You've been inspiring me to get to get more active over there. <laughs> um, my Twitter is the drop step underscore. And um, that's where you can find me, man. Let's talk hoops. I'm open to any and all conversations. That's what my channel is about. Much like you, like. I just want to talk real basketball, man. I'm not trying to cover the Lakers every week. I'm not trying to cover the Nets every week. That's boring. That's what I'm saying, man. And I think it's too easy. I mean, it came to a a point last postseason where Brian Windhorst of the ESPN had to ban talking about the Lakers (laughs) on the Hoop Collective because the Lakers weren't in the postseason. That's how desperate they were to seek out Mm storylines. I'm not seeking out storylines. There's plenty available in the NBA. You just have to be willing to go ahead and talk about it. You got to be willing to sit down and do the dirty work and talk about some of these teams that aren't getting nearly as much love. I'm glad that we were able to have that opportunity. 
with that being the case guys remember to like comment and subscribe all of Rashad's stuff will be in the comment section down below you have to check him out if you don't think this man knows basketball after what we heard I don't think you were actually listening you might need to start it over try listening to the episode again give it a second try and then give his channel a good look and then really find out when he goes in depth how he gets talk gets down when talking about the Nuggets and other teams in the league with that yes, being sir. the case thank you guys for listening and until next time peace out